0: The problem is, until you know exactly what the sequence of events was at the reactors in Japan, it's hard to evaluate exactly what would happen here if the same event occurred.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams
3: from a sunny Southern California in between rain and snowstorms. Bob, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd also like to take this time to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at SunTrust.com slash law, Clio, web-based practice management software program for lawyers at GoClio.com, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis, a leading provider of information business solutions at MyFirmManager.com slash L-T-N. Bob, I know that you write some blogs.
2: That's right. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And uh, I think that might be the first time you've ever mentioned snow in the five plus years we've been doing this show, Craig. Did I hear you, you right on that? Yeah, actually, um,
3: we're about an hour away from the mountains and we get locally snow. And up in Mammoth, I understand this year, they've gotten over 500 inches of snow.
2: Oh, very good.
3: Well, Bob, at the end of the program, before we introduce what we're going to be doing in uh, in the beginning of the program, you and I are going to have a little discussion about mobile phones, uh, Android, Blackberries, and uh, iPhones, and a little bit of a smackdown, I think, between the two of us about whose phone's better. (laughs) We're going to do that, right? And what are we going to talk about first? Well, as the world anxiously... Watches the nuclear crisis unfold in Japan. There are growing concerns about the safety of nuclear power plants right here in the United States. There are 104 atomic power plants in the U.S. 23 of these plants are the same design as the Fukushima Daiichi plant. I'm sure I mispronounced that, uh, which has the world on edge. General Electric Corporation has been building these boiling water Mark I reactors for over 40 years.
2: Craig, according to uh, calculations by the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, out of all the reactors in the country in the United States, the one with the highest risk of core damage from an earthquake uh, would be reactor number three at the Indian Point Energy Center in Buchanan, New York, which is just 30 miles away from New York City and its 8 million residents. The uh, second plant on the high-risk list is Pilgrim number one, uh, in Plymouth, right here in Massachusetts. And uh, number three is in Pennsylvania. And I, I think where I am, I'm, I'm kind of situated uh, in a little triangle between three three nuclear reactors, uh, one just up the coast from me. So uh, I'm watching this carefully.
3: Yeah, as are we out here in California, Bob, Uh, we've got a number of nuclear plants uh, up and down the coast. And in fact, one very close to where I live, uh, the San Onofre nuclear plant that sits right on the coast and uh, does not have, from what I can tell, any kind of a seawall in front of it to uh, prevent tsunami attacks. So I'm interested to see... What these gentlemen are going to be thinking, because we're all wondering whether American plants are safe. Who's going to be held responsible after a nuclear accident in America? How has this recent disaster impacted the environment? And nuclear litigation is today's topic on Lawyer to Lawyer. Our guests are here to answer these complex questions and many more, including what potential liability there may be for the radiation that's flowing from Japan across Hawaii, Alaska, and the West Coast states, Washington, Oregon, and California. So first up is attorney Marty Malsh. He is a partner with Egan, Fitzpatrick, Malsh and Lawrence PLLC, a law firm specializing in nuclear energy and waste matters, as well as administrative litigation. He's practiced law in the nuclear energy and nuclear waste fields for over 40 years. Before he entered the private sector in 1997, he served with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for over 15 years as his deputy general counsel and before then as senior regulation counsel and senior trial counsel. Marty also served as the NRC's Acting General Counsel and Inspector General. He's participated in licensing over 50 nuclear power plants.
2: So we have a real expert here. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Marty. Thank you. Also joining us today is Jeffrey H. Fettis. Jeff is a Senior Project Attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, where he works on its nuclear program. His litigation and advocacy work focuses on the beginning and end of the nuclear fuel cycle, including issues associated with uranium mining and radioactive waste disposal. Jeff formerly worked as an assistant attorney general in New Mexico and for a public interest law firm in New Mexico before joining the NRDC in 2001. Welcome to lawyer to lawyer Jeff Fettis.
4: Thanks, it's Jeff and it's good to be here.
2: Well, here's a
3: what's what's the latest uh, and I know this is changing as you mentioned before the show hour by hour and minute by minute. But uh, as it stands today, generally speaking, what's going on in the Japan disaster and, and how has what's happening there in, in the nuclear plants uh, affecting the local people and the greater environment?
0: This is Marty. I, I I can start. And first of all, I should say that, you know, information transfer is kind of spotty here and things seem to be changing minute to minute. The, the most I think we can say is that there looks like there is – Uh, substantial core damage and maybe some melting in two or three reactors, and probably serious problems with spent fuel pool cooling in at least two other reactors. Uh, There's almost certainly some substantial on-site contamination. There is almost certainly some off-site contamination, but I'm not clear what the levels are or what degree of risk they actually pose because Uh, the information about actual readings and levels is is very spotty and often when it's reported, it's not clear to me what it means.
4: This is Jeff, and I'll take on where Marty left off. I think that's about right. Um, as far as the reactors, we know they have reestablished uh, a transmission power line to the site. Uh, we don't. What, what we don't know is whether or not they've reestablished power to be able to cool both the pools and the actual reactors where there's been partial fuel melt. Um, so uh the conservative IAEA assessment that we saw and I think this is from yesterday from Yuki Amano he said I still don't think it's time to say they're going in a good direction or not uh, that kind of cryptic or elliptical statement leaves us really just waiting and watching on the status of the actual on the status of the actual facility and by the way you actually pronounced it correctly which I'm very uh, admiring of as far as the release of radioactivity we know the Japanese government's confirmed radioactive iodine has, has, has now been detected in the water supplies of Fukushima City, and it's over and it's at least at the legal threshold, the Japanese legal threshold for radioactive contamination of drinking water. Um, and we are actually looking at how their regs compare with the U.S. regulations, but at this point, I don't have an answer. It's also shown up in tap water in greater Tokyo, but at only a small percentage of the threshold. Um... And we also know, and these I'm sure I will mispronounce, in the Tochigi and Gunma prefectures north of the capital, but all too significant to affect human health, according to Japan's Ministry of Science and Technology. Um, One thing I do want to quickly turn to, because you raised it, I think it was Craig or um, Bob, the radiation detectors in California have picked up signals of radioactive strontium, cesium, iodine, and xenon that are consistent with the... Signal from a reactor accident, but it's at such small levels in this country that we've seen thus far that the radiation health physics that we subscribe to and that we're following here. And fortunately, I have a, as Marty well knows, a radiation health physicist on staff. Um, at this point, we don't, we have not seen any indication that there's a danger in this country yet.
0: Yeah, so, and I, just to say, I, I agree with that. One of the issues is. That people should be aware of, is that radiation detection instruments are exquisitely sensitive. So that really, really small levels are very easily detected. So when somebody says, aha, we detected elevated levels of radioactivity, I don't know what that means. It could mean practically nothing, or it could mean this is a serious problem. As near as we can tell, uh, so far the levels detected in the U.S. are really, really small and, and not posing a problem
3: if the levels that are detected on the West Coast in Alaska and Hawaii reach the level of, of something that is dangerous to individuals, what type of liability does Japan have to uh, people that live in the United States that are affected by their nuclear disaster?
0: Marty, that's all you. <laughs> well, I'll start. I mean, the, the, the usual, I, mean, I have not looked at this question in detail, so all I can state is 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 what the general rules that generally apply. And they are that that liability for an accident is usually channeled to the operator of the installation, in this case, Tokyo Electric Power Company. And generally, other people are not held liable. But the liability is absolute, so that there's no requirement that fault be shown. But there is a requirement that causation be shown. And I would think that at the levels we've seen so far, and even if the levels are increased substantially, Uh, Proving causation in the United States is going to be a serious obstacle to anyone bringing a lawsuit. But, I mean, we'll have to see. This is really kind of speculation on my part.
4: I think that's right. And you get agreement from NRDC on that. I think think there's going to be, uh, from all that we're seeing, especially with what we're seeing in terms of the conflicting information, I think there's going to be substantial contamination in Japan that will be tragic and add to the Bitter insults already suffered through the earthquake and the tsunami. How bad it will be, I think, remains to be seen, and how soon they can get things under control there, Um, and also better information. Uh, At this point, speculating on what could or could not float its way across to the United States is is really premature and and here 's a good piece of news we 'll actually have if there 's a substantial release beyond what has already occurred, meaning a new fire breaks out or uh, a significant fuel melt in addition to what 's already happened we 'll actually have uh, a couple days' notice
2: well let me just uh, interject the in the in the wake of everything that 's happened in Japan, uh, of course, President Obama has uh, spoken to the safety of American nuclear power plants. We're going to just play a a short clip uh, from C-SPAN of him speaking to this topic.
3: Our nuclear power plants have undergone exhaustive study and have been declared safe for any number of extreme uh, contingencies. But when we see a crisis like the one in Japan, we have a responsibility to learn from this event and to draw from those lessons to ensure the safety and security of our people. That's why I've asked the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to do a comprehensive review of the safety of our domestic nuclear plants in light of the natural disaster that unfolded in Japan.
2: Marty, uh, is, as far back as, as the 1970s, physicists uh, and engineers have, have talked about des- design deficiencies with these uh, GE Mark I reactors, uh, a, a number of uh, which are in operation here in the United States. Uh, could something like this uh happen in the united states uh as as what's happened in japan
0: um well i I think it's i mean you, you can never say the the likelihood is zero but I really think it's probably less likely than to occur here than would happened in Japan for a, a number of reasons uh one is we do have lots of uh g e mark one reactors, but uh pursuant to n r c requirements uh those reactors have been upgraded substantially. In addition, we have additional emergency procedures, both to deal with uh, station blackout and also to deal with the possible loss of backup power systems. But having said that, you know, we still don't know the details about how exactly this accident occurred, so, you know, we shouldn't be drawing premature conclusions either that it tells us nothing to suggest that U.S. nuclear power plants are safe or that Uh, it tells us that they're unsafe. I think we have to do basically what the president asked the NRC to do, which is, you know, do a lessons learned evaluation and look at the safety of U.S. nuclear power plants. And if there's some things that should be done, then they should be done. Um, I do know that already the NRC has sent people out to check on backup power supply systems to make sure they're in place. But the problem is until you know exactly what the sequence of events was at the reactors in japan it 's hard to evaluate exactly what would happen here if the same event occurred because you can 't precisely identify the event so uh, I just want to say that you know premature conclusions about safety or lack of safety are both possible and probably should be avoided.
2: Jeff, do you want to add anything to that on that on that issue? Uh,
4: I kind of have a different take than marty it's not an explicit set of disagreements, but it's a very different perspective. Uh, you know getting into the game of uh, low probability high consequence accidents which is what you really have in a nuclear power scenario um makes it very hard for somebody to try and play the role of Cassandra and say it may happen but that's what but that's what essentially the regulator has to do And my complaint with the NRC and the structure we have in this country and why I think Mr. Obama's statement, while well taken as an immediate step, we certainly need to do substantially more and have somebody independent of the NRC lead lead that process of safety review, is because it's informed by a very different perspective on how the NRC does, does its job. And Marty will be well aware of this. There's been a running battle over between the health community, the environmental community, the public interest community, and the NRC and the industry on the other side on what the NRC will actually analyze in the Safety and environmental reviews that it undertakes for the licensing of nuclear power plants. Waste, for example, is essentially outside of the licensing review as far as we're concerned. And there's a whole lawsuit that I'm actually running on that that's in the D.C. Circuit right now that just got filed actually before the Japanese disaster. But to give you a better sense of what I'm talking about, about 25 years ago um, in California at the Diablo, uh, at the Diablo plant, Um, the Diablo plant is only a few kilometers from the, and I will probably mispronounce this as well, the Huskery earthquake fault. And, uh, the folks who, who litigated the Diablo plant many, many years ago when I was, must have been, uh, in grade school or something at that point, argued that, uh, The licensing should be blocked because the emergency plans for the facility failed to consider the possibility that an earthquake might cause a radiological accident, which is precisely what just happened here. But the then-NRC Commission rejected that concern and even prohibited the staff and the public from considering it. And the reasoning there was that the plant was designed to withstand the maximum credible earthquake for the site, and therefore a radiological accident really won't be able to, won't, won't be something that they have to analyze. So this actually went to the D.C. Circuit, and by a 5-4 vote, um, and this was after temporary stay, Then, and there was an en banc. It actually went en banc from the D.C. Circuit, uh, from an en banc proceeding to the Supreme Court. Um... Basically, it was a uh, contentiously argued matter, and the NRC was given room to never have to look at the issue. And there's all kinds of things that the NRC uh, excludes from its safety, licensing, and environmental reviews. For example, proliferation or security issues that could cause a catastrophic accident. We're not just talking tsunamis or earthquakes or hurricanes. You can also have a security or uh, terrorism kind of incident at a nuclear power plant that the NRC does not review as part of its safety and licensing process, and I think a lot of that's going to need to be reassessed in light of what's happened in Japan.
3: Marty, well, how does the NRC look at things? Do they look at it from the standpoint that you know all of this, as uh, Jeff mentioned, is high probability, even though or uh, high low consequences, <laughs> even though the the probabilities are very low, um, but given the 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 chances of of disastrous results, why doesn't the nRC look at
2: these things
0: well they they do they do certainly in in initially licensing a plant for construction and operation, there is uh extensive consideration given to severe accidents, uh both in terms of plant design and, and plant procedures there's huge consideration given to the adequacy of the seismic design uh design against flooding uh, and the like. So those matters are really considered uh, in great detail. We have long since uh, passed the point where uh, severe actions were considered to be beyond the bounds of discussion in initial licensing. But I do agree with Jeff. I, I think that the policy adopted by the commission in the Diablo Canyon case, that it would not consider the possible complicating effects of an earthquake on an emergency response, uh, I think uh, that should be reconsidered.
2: We, we're, going to take a, we're going to take a short break right now. Uh, we will talk more about uh, nuclear regulation uh, and the law just after a few words from our sponsor.
1: Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and wading through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC.
5: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing?
4: I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the Power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind
6: them. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches.
5: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you.
4: And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O
6: ocom Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand-new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application. Operating in SAS seventy type two attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not?
5: I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh yeah, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE. Click on it and start listening, or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE.
6: That's perfect. The office can wait.
2: Uh, Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, along with my co-host, J. Craig Williams. We're joined by attorney Marty Mulch, uh, partner with Egan Fitzpatrick, Mulch & Lawrence, and Jeffrey H. Fettis, uh, senior project attorney for the National Resources Defense Council nuclear program. Uh, one of the questions I'm, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you about is, is I guess the question of, of liability. Uh, should an accident occur, and I, I'm sure it's complicated by all sorts of questions about how the accident occurs and, and what the cause of it was. Uh, but but should there be uh, leakage, uh, an accident in a nuclear plant, and, and, and leakage uh, of radioactive uh, uh, material from? The plant uh, and, and citizens are exposed or, or uh, food stocks are harmed in some way. Uh, uh, who bears responsibility for that? Uh, Jeff, let me ask you that question.
4: Well, this is actually where I would turn to Marty. Um, he'd be one of the first people that I'd call. But there's something called the Price-Anderson Act. That's a, a section of the Atomic Energy Act of 1954, which is an anachronism that still exists in law. And the Price-Anderson Act essentially is the federal assumption of liability in the event of a catastrophic accident at at a nuclear power plant. And the nuclear industry, and Marty, please correct me if I get anything wrong in this sort of gross, quick oversimplification, Uh, the nuclear industry essentially... Creates a small insurance pool, and they have a liability cap. What is it now, Marty? Twelve billion, about right now?
0: Yeah. Uh, it, well, yeah. L- l- let me say that the total liability cap is approximately thirteen billion dollars. But it, it thirteen billion. Thirteen billion. Yeah. But it doesn't really include any federal guarantees. It's all made up of uh, systems of private insurance.
4: Right. Well, that thirteen billion is the private insurance, and anything beyond that uh, will be assumed by the taxpayers. No, I don't think
0: so. I mean, what the act says is that in the event of an accident with liabilities that appear to be in excess of $13 billion, there'll be a report to Congress, and then Congress will consider one or more additional revenue measures to compensate victims. I think that is a signal that the revenue measures they're thinking about are more, uh, uh, more taxes or more uh, fees or more retrospective premiums on the nuclear power industry, not
4: the taxpayer.
3: Well, Jeff, here's a question you may be able to answer. What, um, what would you recommend as a practical effect in the event of a nuclear accident for people that live like Bob in between three of them, or like me who live about 15 miles away from another one? Uh, and how is it that radiation travels? And we've heard that radiation is traveling across... Uh, The jet stream uh, from Japan. Look at your weather
4: forecast.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought the jet, I thought the radiation was, was rays and, you know, like an x-ray and you had to be within, you know, in the direct line of where the, the, you know, radiation, I don't call it ray for lack of a better word, uh, is going. So how does it work and what, what should we do?
4: I don't think we really have time to do an explanation of health physics. And being the lawyer here in the shop at NRDC, I'm certainly the wrong guy to do it. But the radioactive isotopes uh, of all kinds can be released from a nuclear power accident, and they can deposit or move with the prevailing weather with, with the prevailing weather patterns. One of the good news is one of the pieces of good news from the Japanese accident is it's our sense that a significant amount of Uh, the radioactive spread of contamination has gone out to sea uh, because the prevailing wind pattern at Fukushima is west to east, which takes it off the northeast coast of Japan. Um, The prevailing wind pattern in California is west to east as well, which would take it into populated areas, and that makes for a more complicated state response and plant response that needs to be part of any emergency or evacuation plan. Um, Stuff can be airborne, stuff can be deposited in land, and then uh, essentially accumulated up. One of the big issues that came out of Chernobyl was actually a lot of the contamination left the Ukraine where Chernobyl happened and landed in Belarus, where there was a significant amount of contaminated hotspots that then essentially made their way into food products, milk, things like that. Um, And so the issue is it it can be taken up in water. That's why it's showing up now. We're seeing signs in the Tokyo water system. Granted, they were very, very, very small levels, but it's an enormous concern that it's even commenced. And so I think what you would... The issues domestically are just what I've described, Um, essentially uh, doing precisely what the NRC has... I think, done uh, as far as American citizens in Japan. Um, I think there was some interesting diplomatic tussling that must have gone on as uh, the NRC made a recommendation, and Marty, was this right, to move American citizens 50 miles that's, from, that's the, my, from the Fukushima reactor? That's my understanding. Which exceeded what the Japanese government was suggesting for its own citizens. So, but that was based on American standards.
0: Yeah, this is Marty. I I I think Jeff's description of uh the radiological hazards is essentially correct. I mean, the danger is not so much from what I would call a shine dose directly from the reactor, but from the transport of materials that are radioactive, to either the airborne or waterborne pathways. And and that's what's to watch that's what's to watch out for.
2: I'm sorry to say that we're just about at the end of this segment of our program uh like to give each of you an opportunity to to kind of give us your your closing thoughts uh, if you'd like to do that and also let our listeners know how they could follow up with you or get information more information about the work that you do if they would like to do that uh, so Marty, let me start with you
0: Well, the first thing I would say is that 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 you know we shouldn't jump to conclusions one way or the other about uh, the impacts of the disaster that's ongoing in Japan. Um, I think the NRC is doing the right thing and saying we're gonna study uh events and make sure that if necessary the safety in of US nuclear power plants are upgraded. Uh, I think that's the correct approach. Uh I think we should avoid jumping to conclusions until we know exactly what's happened. Uh but uh let's see how things develop. I know the NRC has already announced um it is undertaking some studies and I'm sure there'll be further in the future that we should uh, pay attention to and, and, and key into if we're interested. Uh for me, uh the best way to follow up with me is email. It's M at nuclear
4: dot com. And Jeff? Okay. Um I agree with Marty that there's it's really premature to jump to any conclusions about the totality or meaning of the Japanese disaster. But uh the the tragedy is unmistakable. Um domestically in R D C and I can assure you I'm Many of that uh many other of our brethren in the environmental community are going to be pressuring the n r c to not only move forward with its quick review but probably uh, press uh possibly the current administration and others to move forward with with a more thorough review of nuclear safety. I think this is a um, this is an inflection point uh, for, the, for the NRC to maybe move to a regulatory system where it gets some more things right from our perspective. And if you want to reach me or continue to follow what NRDC is doing, uh, we're on the web at www.nrdc.org, that's the Natural Resources Defense Council.org, or you can reach me at Fetus G-F-E-T-T-U-S, at nrdc.org.
3: Great. Well, thank you both for being on the program uh, t- today. We really appreciate uh, your your guidance and your information. That uh,
2: has been a big help, Bob. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'd like to thank both of you for being on the program, uh, and uh, really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. It's and been a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you, both thanks. gentlemen.
2: Thanks a lot. Well, Craig, uh, we're going to uh, move in for the the, the 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 final segment of this program. Uh, we were uh, we were going to talk about phones, and I understand you recently got a new phone uh, and uh, weren 't entirely pleased with it uh, and uh, so what 's going on with your phone situation, Craig? Well,
3: I had a Blackberry storm, and it essentially died it uh, randomly started turning itself off after having it for about two years. so I sent it back to um, the carrier and they sent me a new storm too which was great, um, slightly bigger screen and just as much functionality as the old one. But then the Storm 2 decided that it was uh, not going to type anymore, which for a lawyer is a disastrous um, decision to make for a cell phone. So I broke down and got went out and got an iPhone 4 and uh, started using it. I've had it for about a week and a half, maybe two weeks and um for large part you know the applications are uh, numerous as everybody says and and you know some functional some fun but um uh, the operating system the iOS 4 i guess it is operating system that uh exists on it is difficult to use from a number of perspectives it doesn't uh the phone essentially doesn 't have a back button, um, so you frequently have to simply exit out of uh, the screen that you 're in working on a particular program and then uh, start restart the program, which seems to me to be a, a huge waste of time uh, and that's that 's one of the biggest things that I uh, really have a hard time with with my uh, with my new iPhone. Well,
2: I love my iPhone. <laughs> I do love my iPhone. Uh I I have the the 3GS. I don't I don't have the 4 the 4 yet, uh, but uh uh it's uh it, you know, it it's it's liberated me from my laptop in a lot of ways. Uh and uh I I use it uh when I'm on the road uh, just just out of the office or or on the road. I I I I've come to really rely on on the features it has. I'm I'm a I'm a uh, uh an app addict I guess uh, in terms of uh, adding new apps and and using new apps. what uh, what 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 we're lacking uh, in this conversation is is somebody who can talk uh talk to us more about the Android because uh, it seems that uh, increasingly the 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 Android phones uh have been gaining popularity uh, among the within the legal market and uh in in particular this new uh, HTC Thunderbolt phone i'm i'm hearing a lot about which is just supposed to be uh, speedy as all get go uh and uh and uh, quite uh, Quite a impressive smartphone uh, has been getting a lot of a lot of buzz. But uh,
3: I was gonna, I was thinking about getting a, an Android phone and uh, researched it and talked to the people within our firm. However, our IT people have indicated that Android is not very strong on its enterprise uh, service, which means that for large law firms that have a number of lawyers where these phones are used and distributed, uh, they don't work well with remote servers. Uh, And as a consequence, our firm has declined to undertake to support Android phones. So the only two phones that we're supporting, uh, at this point are, uh, Blackberries and, uh, Apple phones. So that's, that's a big strike against Android
2: that that is i i think the workaround for that i'm i'm not entirely sure of this but i i think the workaround for that is to use google apps you know Google apps is a enterprise version uh of of uh of google's different suite of cloud based uh, applications it's it's gmail it's uh google docs it's google Calendar, uh and they have an enterprise version that that runs seamlessly uh it, it basically replaces uh um uh, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft uh, applications as uh, Microsoft Exchange as as an application for email and and other uh, enterprise level applications. And some law yeah. firms, some I don't know if any really big law firms have gone to Google Apps, but some medium sized and smaller firms have gone to Google Apps. It's uh, affordable and it's pretty reliable. And that that's I
3: see that. You- and that's a good workaround, except for the situation of you and you will remember this, I think perhaps not so fondly, but the uh the big switch over from uh word perfect in the legal profession to word had went on for years tons of complaints, and people are still complaining about it and uh I think to make another fundamental shift from Microsoft Word to Google uh docs is something that a lot of lawyers are just going to push back on, and, you know, the, the and that's the problem that Apple has from the standpoint of trying to come into the market. Uh, all, a great majority of the lawyers are used to working on Microsoft-based products, and for someone to come in with a phone system like Apple has done, um, without the flexibility to do many different, to do one thing many different ways, uh, Apple really is, you know, you got to find the way to do it, and then if you find it, then you're okay, but like, for example, um, one of the things that I detest about the mail system with, um, at my Apple phone is that I can't realistically tell if I'm getting new emails and I can't uh, mark easily mark a, uh, an email as unread uh, if after I've looked at it and I want to come back to it later. Uh, you've got to go drill down into the email itself in order to find it and then, and then mark it. And, and that's frequently three to four screens down, which is... In, in, not convenient and uh, something that I, it just blows my mind that is as user friendly as Apple touts itself uh, it is far from user
2: friendly yeah it, it is imperfect there's no question about it there there is a workaround for that Microsoft Office issue it not it, better than a workaround I mean Google I think is anticipating this and and Google has created uh, uh, synchronization both for uh, uh, outlook uh, and for uh, Microsoft Word. So, uh, you can keep your Microsoft Word and your Google Docs synchronized, and you can keep your, uh, any, uh, email that you're using through a Gmail app or a Google Apps, uh, App and, and your calendar also synchronized with your Outlook calendar and your Outlook email, so it's pretty seamless. I mean, you can actually be working in Outlook and uh, working through Google Apps, and, and you don't really even know you're using Google. Uh, it it just becomes uh, a cloud-based uh, Exchange server, um, and uh, that's I think I think that that's going to uh, speed up uh, you know more and more because people are so mobile. They're using these cloud-based apps like Google, and I, I think that's going to uh, um, catch on a little more quickly than than the word perfect to word <laughs> uh, uh, changeover. And that may be. But uh, this is
3: going to have to wait for another day to finish up this debate. And uh, hopefully uh, the iPhone 5, when it comes out, will solve some of these problems. But in the meantime, uh, it's time for us to wrap up and uh, say goodbye to our listeners until next week. Um, and... Remember for our listeners, you can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcast. You can go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center.
2: Well, it's uh, it's been an interesting show today, and uh, I'd like to, uh, again, thank our thank our guests uh, who took the time to be with us today, uh, and, of course, also remind our listeners that uh, we are at the legaltalknetwork.com, where they can find all of our Uh, programs going back five-plus years archived there. And uh, we're also in the iTunes library, uh, the podcast library on iTunes.
3: Great. And we will be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. So when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We will see you then.
1: See you. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. Every week a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.